As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm delighted to be energetically joined today by JJ Bull the Bullet. I am energetic. Here I am. Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Hi. <laughs> and of course, joining us all the way from Germany, our Guten Tag, Herr Stafford Bloor, wie geht's du? Hello, Joe Devine. Yes, that's okay. Yes, right, fine. Yeah, he didn't, check, he didn't answer the Gates bit, but that's fine. Listen, we've got loads to get through. Gates on today's podcast. Uh, so uh, let me uh, tell you a little bit about that now. The Winterpause. Yes, the World Cup enforced Winterpause. We will discuss that in the Premier League and where all the teams are now. A little bit about the relegation battle. They're very unclear this season so far, isn't it? There was a uh, Portuguese Manchester United player who made some comments that we'll be discussing later on. Great and of course, joke also, coming up. Yeah, yeah that's a, a funny bit. That's a funny Zoy bit. Later. This joke. Oh, that's going to be a, that's a fun joke. That joke didn't really work in the bit, but you'll get there later. Um, changes to the game. Should we change everything and destroy it all? Yes, we'll talk about that. Um, and of course, also, we will look ahead a little bit to the World Cup as we approach the end of today's podcast. Very exciting, isn't it? Now, if you like to look ahead and be excited, or indeed look back and be sorrowful, then you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where there are some nostalgia bits, but mostly it's hopefulness. Yeah? And of course, during the World Cup, there's an awful lot of extremely high-quality content to be released on the Athletics platform. I, t- I spent a little bit of time with uh, Charlie Scott, the, uh, one of the World Cup editors there, seeing his long list. Oh, not sure I've ever seen a sexier long list. So, you know, so check that out. Yeah? Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Two quick things to plug before we carry on. And I know I've already plugged one other thing so in total it's three things but this bit is an extra bit which makes the whole intro longer doesn't it? it's a bonus bit <laughs> this whole bit is just extending the bit that people want to they want to get to the the bit afterwards wondering as a clever trick steve hank you know when people listen on their phones and they skip 15 seconds ahead i'm still in this bit when they skip <laughs> and i'm still going to be in it on the second one as well no that's too long one other thing to mention two other things i'm still in the bit i can't get out of the bit hold on let me get out of the bit hold on one sec one second here we go getting out of the bit now 
Uh, also, how to watch football. If you don't know how to watch football, then welcome to the podcast. But also, you can buy this book, How to Watch Football. 52, uh, I can't believe I don't know the subtitle yet. 52 Rules for Understanding the Beautiful Game on and off the pitch. Look at this. Look at the heft of this thing. Now, this has been worked on for a, over a year, actually. Most of it uh, written by uh, Seb Stafford-Bloor. A number of chapters in here written by uh, Alex Stewart also. And there's a, a couple by John, a couple by JJ. Everybody's in here. Illustrated by Alice. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it really is. I, I make these, it's very nice. I make these adverts sound like every product is terrible. But this is actually genuinely very, very good. And it's only it's £10. I think it's £8 on Amazon at the moment. It comes out on Thursday. And we're genuinely very very proud of it it's a it's a perfect stocking filler you know it fits in those stockings buy it for yourself buy it for everyone you know just buy it because uh, you won't regret it have you ever spent 10 pounds that would for more bang for that buck no no uh, no, no never i have only spent 10 pounds on i bought the new sonic game i haven't played it oh i watched the, the, the yeah. donkey video of that. yeah i'm not watching it until i played it first yeah, yeah. But uh, I could buy five, five books for the same price that I spent for Sonic yeah. that I haven't played yet. Do buy, do buy this, but it's very, very good. It's very, very good. And also, one other thing you should watch, again, because this is, unfortunately, we've planned this terribly, uh, where there's a World Cup in the winter, and we have to make all of our stuff for this week. But um, there are five episodes of a Qatar World Cup Explained series going out on the TIFO Football YouTube channel this week, which, again, Alice Devine, the illustrator of this book here, has spent a few months on now. And uh, God bless her, has been working weekends and evenings for the last couple of weeks to get finished. Written by the the fantastic James Montague. It's the longest thing we've ever done. I think all in all, it's sort of probably about over 90 minutes worth of, of illustrated video. I think it's maybe also the best thing we've ever done. We're very, very proud of it. So if you happen to find yourself some free time during the week and you've already purchased the book, <laughs> then do head over to the TIFO Football YouTube channel and um, have a watch of this series where we go back 150 years to try to explain what's happened. In the, it does not, it does, it's not all set 150 years ago. Most of it's now, but that's as far back as we go. Anyway, that's on TIFO Football. But for now, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of the Winterpauser. Okay, let's begin then. Uh, we have come to the natural Winterpause. Yes, the World Cup enforced break in the uh, the Premier League season. So we think this is a good opportunity to look back and um, have a think about what the teams in the Premier League have, have done so far. Perhaps extend ourselves across Europe a little later in the show. Um, things that have surprised us, John McKenzie, probably best to start with Arsenal, and while I think it's it's fair to say we all expected Arsenal to be good this season, off the back of you know strong performances towards the end of last season, it's a surprise that they're top at Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. I was not expecting this at all, and I am someone who's come from a point where I was quite critical of what Arteta was doing at Arsenal, and I suppose it really shows the the benefit of having a long term vision, um, having a long term plan as well, because I think that's where it's come from. Right? They've not only have they brought in better players to suit their system but they have that system that we've talked about loads on this channel which is allowing them flexibility to solve problems that different oppositions are sending their way so yeah we were talking at the beginning of the season about them being probable contenders for the Champions League 
and we've got you know not quite midway through the season but a big chunk of the way through the season and now we are having to talk about whether or not they have the ability to win the league which is I think a bit of a surprise for all of us. In terms of what criticisms you had of Arteta last season or, or earlier than that what is it that he has done to adjust your perspective other than obviously the results? Yeah I mean I think last season was when I started believing mainly because the the off ball stuff was really good they started having the ability to control games and control games against different kinds of opponents, which I think is a really important tool to have if you're going to be a dominant side, an elite side. You have to be able to have different game plans for, for these different opponents. And then that obviously culminated in the end of last season with them starting to put together a lot of interesting ideas in possession. So we started seeing Arteta starting to invert his his fullbacks, having different combinations of players in the build-up phase which allows different approaches to opponents and that's just got better and better since probably around around the beginning of this of this calendar year mm. this season they've added Zinchenko so it gives them the ability to to invert on that side they've got Ben White playing as right back which has, has made a yeah. huge difference they brought in William Saliba Who's, which facilitated that and he's been is there an argument to say he's been maybe one of their best players yeah, for sure, for sure. And probably the argument to be made that he has been one of the best defenders in the Premier League this season as well. And obviously Gabriel Jesus gives them so much more flexibility and creativity in the forward area, which I think is is important because I think as soon as you become a team who can control games, teams are going to be much more likely to sit deeper. And so you need to have that, that sort of creative player to, to get, get more uh, out of those, those sorts of low blocks. Uh, Honourable mentions for, I think, Gabriel Martinelli has been good this season. Bakaya Saka we knew was good already as well. But again, the, the system just facilitates them to be able to do different things um, depending on how other teams set up. So you can, you can have situations where they are doing the sort of standard touchline hugging pinning um, but there's also because because there's this ability to play a lot narrower in build-up they can create space in the wide areas around those two as well and again it's uh, these these are all sorts of facets that add to this ability to problem solve which makes them so dangerous now Seb I believe I'm right in saying that at this point in the season they're at a place where uh, no team has ever reached before and not then won the league why does it still feel as though <laughs> Man City are gonna triumph in the second half of the season well, I guess it feels that way just because Manchester City have redefined what it is to be a what's an acceptable standard for a title to contender to maintain over the course of a year. Like I think if you look over the last sort of ten years, every time a team like a team contending for the title has dropped points, not just in defeat, but if they've, you know, had an away draw, it's treated like a tragedy. And I, I think that describes just how thin the margins are at the top. Mm. And I think not unreasonably, I think people are still mindful of what happened last season in the sense that injuries really hurt Arsenal. Really hurt Arsenal. I mean, one of the differences this season has been that they've bought really well, but also bought really well for the right positions. And if you look back from about sort of April, May onwards, and the team having to include Tavares, a left back, they lost Thomas Partey as well, which is a big problem. Alexander Lacazette was not really a feast or famine player, but he was someone who... One part of his game was okay. He was a facilitating forward, but not in the same way or to the same level that Gabriel Jesus mm. was. And so you had a situation where you either put the 11 best players on the pitch or it all went wrong, or it was, you know, not went wrong. It's a bit melodramatic. Sure. When you've had such a bad experience, it's so it's not that far in the past, and you have a team like Manchester City chasing you, I think that conspires to create the perception that you can't make any mistakes whatsoever. Yeah. 
which is not really true. I don't, I don't think that's really fair on Arsenal. Because, well, Man City dropped um, points this weekend. Yeah, but also, if you look back at what's worked for Arsenal this year, like we can talk about the tactics, talk about Arteta, but I think resiliency is one of them. That game at Old Trafford where they played really well against Man United because they, they got beaten. Mm. I think in previous seasons, that hurts Arsenal in a way that it didn't this yeah. year. And they're able to come back and maintain their rhythm and the momentum. Bouncing straight back from and that was, was a big deal, wasn't it? 100%. It was a huge moment in their season. So I think it's based on what Arsenal used to be, what we know Man City to be, what we perhaps expect Man City to do in the transfer market in January, maybe. Yeah. yeah, all of those things add up to this idea that just leading at this time of the season just isn't quite enough. Well, speaking of January JJ, we talked at January JJ, who's very different from December <laughs> and November JJ. Yeah. Very morose, macabre character. Definitely different person, yeah. Speaking of January, we talked about Gabriel Jesus last week. Mm. And I saw some suggestions uh, over the week that obviously there's a January transfer window. If you were Mikel Arteta at the moment, would you consider trying to double down on the you know the early season success and trying to get another buy more players, but buy another forward, maybe buy, oh, buy, yeah. buy some extra goals? I mean, would you do that or would you risk? I suppose in doing that, you risk squad harmony, don't you? Hard yeah, to but know what the right thing to do is. I think you can compare it to like Kiki's Newcastle. He brought in Espria and it went all wrong for them there. But yeah. uh, I think what they would do is find someone who can finish. Uh, chances in a different sort of way a different profile player to Jesus so obviously you want to not disrupt the squad harmony what you've got going on there but adding in someone else who then takes you to a different level is good so you can bring in a player who's not a squad player you bring in a player who's a first team player yeah and give you real competition for places there and then Jesus probably ends up playing wide like he did at City who's that running through the middle there's a few strikers they could I mean it depends who's available in the market awesome no I don't, I don't think he's right no I wouldn't say him I would say they would go for a player who's technically good. I mean, someone like Benjamin Sesko, who they wouldn't get now because he's going to Leipzig, I think, isn't he? He's at Salzburg now. Some of these, I think you go for someone young as well, so it can be part of this the the, yeah. the age profile that you're going for. Cristiano Ronaldo. I think or probably not him. No. No, he's too... Not him. There are some other players I can't think of off the top of my head. Who would I sign as a football manager? Probably like someone like Sesko is probably what you do. Yeah. Or like Makoko at Dortmund. Well, you, you said uh, you find someone to score goals in a different way. Is it possible if they signed a goalkeeper that that player could carry it in? Yes. So they want to have a goalie who can dribble a lot. So it's like when you're playing Pro Evo at university and if you score with a goalkeeper, then yeah. the person you're playing against has to consume their drink. They should sign Michael Jordan. Yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. But yes, they should definitely do that. Uh, it, it's a one, it could spur them on. This is the thing that they've got. It's not meant yeah, to use the word spur, so they won't like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember like Aberdeen were pushing Celtic once for the for the league, genuinely, about maybe in 2013-14, whatever year yeah, we didn't obviously win it, sure. but won the League Cup. Pushing. And, uh, and the argument that a lot of fans made about Aberdeen was that they should have invested in the transfer market then to really gone big so that was the chance to get it actually there was never really a chance of us winning the league Celtic were always going to win it sure. and spending that money now what well, at the time would have been just a bad use of resources that you could then use to keep uh, your squad better but isn't the whole point a of it kind bedfellow well the whole point is to be competitive right and Arsenal have a chance to win the league so if they can get someone available in the market who they could buy I don't know who would sell in January for any for the sort of money that Arsenal would have Cristiano so. Ronaldo yeah I mean he's available probably yeah at least something to do. All right, well, that's Arsenal. I mean, you know, exceptional and exciting stuff. Well done to Arsenal. Let's have a quick chat about Newcastle, I think, because uh, another surprise of the season, Seb Stafford-Bloor, is that Newcastle are uh, going into the break, I believe, in third place. Yeah, 
Yeah, quite right, Joe Devine. I don't think anybody thought that Newcastle's progress would be what it is. No, I think John's still confused now, even though it's <laughs> happening. I'll, I'll ask him about that shortly. Uh, but well, I, I yeah, I think that's because I think you could see coming out of the summer an obvious defensive improvement just on the base of their recruitment. Mm-hmm. Sven Botman was going to make them better. Kieran Trippier was fit. Um, Nick Pope was a better goalkeeper than Martin Dubravka. Like all of these things added up to to suggest there's going to be a more stable base. I think what nobody really saw coming was sort of the emergence of attacking players who have been at the club for a while to a different level. Nobody saw Miguel Almiron become the renaissance of Almiron. Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about in our Newcastle Sensible Transfers video was a need to replace him. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of Newcastle fans on Twitter who said that, no, 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 you need two players for that position. You can't just depend on a new forward. Like at the time, they were rumoured to be pursuing Alexander Izak, and obviously they signed him. But Amaron wasn't a lost cause, but just someone who belonged to the bottom half of the Premier League table. And he's arguably the former attacking player in the Premier League at the moment, which is just an extraordinary development. And I don't think there's a proper justification or explanation for why that's happened beyond just if you create stability behind players particularly kind of an attacking midfield player you're going to see a different side of their personality Mm. to what you might do under someone like Steve Bruce who insists that you just play behind the ball all the time Mm -hmm. and then attack in kind of 80 yard bursts which is going to show a very different side of a footballer isn't it so but it's been really interesting it's been it's been one of the um I'm interested about what happens next, though. Well, let, me, let me put this because, to you. Because yeah. I talked about this with John the other night, and we said um, it, it's, obvious, it's a surprise. They could very legitimately yeah. finish in the top four. I mean, they just beat Chelsea yeah. at the weekend, and I know Chelsea aren't all that at the moment, but they could legitimately finish in the top four. If they do, then speaking of Arsenal in January before, maybe now's the time to double down. The summer, presumably for Newcastle, who have lots of money to spend, if they have Champions League football, is there a scenario where they've potentially kind of unintentionally or accidentally got about a four-year jump on progress that they needed to make? Because the number of players and the quality of players they could buy in the summer if they finished Champions League, it's now, it's very possible, isn't it? 100%, because it would represent a quantum leap in what's happened before. So uh, not to keep referencing our own work, but we talked about stepping stone players, didn't we, back in January, released a video about it, whereby you have this squad churn as a result of having to buy players to climb up the league in small increments, and then you need to jettison them as soon as you can afford or as soon as you have access to a better quality player. Newcastle, at the moment, if the the season was to finish today, they would have skipped that step. And they're now in a position where they can go straight for the top shelf. Cristiano Ronaldo. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Yeah. Michael Jordan. Joe Scott, Pedro Scotty is now Pepin. one that Arsenal should sign. Joe Pedro. The Watford forward, yeah. Okay, yeah. He's really good. I like Houston, it. I, think, I like it. Um, John, you sort of said to me a couple of times over the last few weeks that, um, you know, even though the underlying numbers look good, which as discussed are just numbers to you because you look at them before you look at the scores, um, <laughs> uh, and that Newcastle are legitimately third, playing well, beat Chelsea at the weekend, there's a part of you that still doesn't really understand it. Yeah, and... What part is that? Again, maybe I'm The just, stupid part. Yeah. Hey? <laughs> maybe I'm just on my Mikel Arteta trajectory with, with Eddie Howe, but I look at what... I mean, and that that's not even true because, like, Arsenal were legitimately sort of putting up underlying numbers that put them eighth for the first couple of seasons under Arteta. Yeah. And this is Eddie Howe coming in and immediately making Newcastle better than, yeah. than they were um, the season before and now even better than they were last season. But so, you're not a believer yet. I wouldn't say I'm not a believer. I just am somewhat perplexed as to what it is that they're doing so well. Yeah. Um, 
not least when I look at the team that they have, because this is very much about just playing very solid football, very principled football, but without necessarily some of the high-level players that you might expect a team in that position to be in. So we've got Miguel Almiron, who, who, as we've said, is playing really well. He's pretty much to the tune of about 50% overperforming on his expected goals. So there is a little bit of overperformance from him there, which helps. But they've lost Alan San Maximan, who you would think of as being... I think a difference maker for this team and they're still playing well they've they've perhaps been a little bit luckier on r- results more recently everything's sort of gone their way but they as we've said they're still putting up underlying numbers that suggest that they are worth the position that they're in and so they play nice intense high pressing football they play aggressive football in fairly direct attacking that they have players like Chris Wood and they have players sure. like Dan Byrne and you know they when they say when they weigh a body as it's dying and then when it dies it's just a little half a gram lighter the weight (laughs) of the soul perhaps your maths can't quantify for a good feeling well i think something about this is that it's not even that tactical with what newcastle's doing like how do you manage a team is it the tactics it's a small part of obviously it's well it's a it can be a large or small part depending on what the manager is but what eddie howe has done very well well he's changed the culture at the club he's changed like the the intensity and the competitiveness within that he's got players playing better than they should be what a good manager does and when you have that really exciting time that Newcastle fans have with suddenly loads of money they're a different club they are a super club now so that's very exciting so that you must get this sort of feeling at the club in the ground as well around the city where you just know things are going to happen so it's exciting and it reminds me a little bit of what Leicester had in the year they won the league and if you think if Arsenal and Man City weren't so good this season if they'd done what happened the the season that Leicester won it Newcastle could easily be top at the moment and keep going with it because you don't know when that momentum is going to end and also they don't have midweek football that changes their team around so they can mostly keep the same core of players going every single week from week to week that really helps Arsenal have benefited from that this season as well even yeah. though they've played the Thursday games but they've rotated a little bit and that'll make a big difference to them going forward I, I guess it's just a shame they're owned by the public investment fund isn't it well yeah <laughs> I did just want to clarify in my opinion I did just want to clarify that like I'm not saying Newcastle are bad but we've just spent sure 15 minutes talking about what makes Arsenal good and a lot of that is this ability to be tactically flexible to do all of these smart things in in build up and stuff and I don't see any of that from Newcastle Newcastle are just playing like they're playing solid football and the players will suit the different bits like Joe Linton is now playing as like the left forward because he's a pressing forward essentially playing midfield obviously being very good at that but then what you get from that rather than St Maximin is that rather than having a very dribbly boy you've got a guy who suits the function of the team even better so it actually might make that work and then you've got like Bruno Gimenez is clearly an amazing player he makes a huge difference in there if he was in a team like Man City or or even Man United or something he wouldn't be the standout player of that entire team whereas they can sort of make him the absolute star of this Newcastle team because that's what he is now and then it just is a good unit it's a good unit around individual players Botman's surprised me because I remember watching him in Liga after I'd heard the name and I'd seen him in transfer gossip columns and you saw like good distribution, good left foot, big guy, like useful uh, in, in both boxes for set pieces. I just wondered, like the big knock on him was always lack of pace. And I just wondered what would happen when you put some of the kind of the more dynamic Premier League pieces around him. And he's been excellent. Like he's had a couple of minor missteps, but generally speaking, like he's, he looks like he's been playing in the Premier League for five years. And I'm not trying to paint the Premier League as a kind of a, an entirely unique division. It's just that France to the Premier League is, is tricky. It's not like going from La Liga or from the Bundesliga or Serie A. It is a little bit different. Um, but he's been excellent. Also, 
I wonder as this period of the season has gone on and very, very clearly there's a lot of very tired players around there um, and there's a kind of a poverty of ideas, poverty of creativity within, you know, uh, certainly amongst some of the bigger sides like Chelsea of the weekend, Tottenham. Some of these teams look absolutely bereft of ideas and so their way of combating that is either through set-piece expertise or um, shelling penalty boxes with crosses and long balls. And Botman is not just someone who hoovers up long balls. He's not just a forehead, basically, is he? At the same time, like if you have him in there, you have Dan Byrne in your back line as well. You have a very, very tall goalkeeper in Nick Pope. I think like you're kind of equipped. You have to do a lot of other things really well, but you're kind of equipped to deal with maybe the last six weeks of the Premier League. And I think that their defence, particularly at White Hart Lane a couple of weeks ago when they won, they're really, really good. There's a question in this then, because if obviously, as it relates to Arsenal, for example, or, or teams that are doing something, which again, not to suggest that Newcastle don't have tactics, that's not what we're saying. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, we would normally talk at this point about how a team might be figured out. If Newcastle are just playing solidly and well, then uh, is the expectation that they will continue to do that for the second half of the season? I mean, is there is there yeah, a, they're not going to be found out? Right? But they can. The, the thing is, people know how they play. It's not like they're not getting found out. It's yeah. the same as Liverpool. It's about intensity, and when just you know how to well. stop that, if you're just playing really well, you can get through it. And they've got yeah. that team spirit, and it's the confidence, and it and gives if you everyone's momentum. Got a forehead. Every, everyone's if got a forehead. Yeah, if you have one giant forehead, if you have many foreheads, then it's much easier. Yeah. They've got an 11 head. Yeah. They're really efficient. Like they're taking, if you look at some of the goals over the past few weeks, they're taking what they're being given. So we talked about that Spurs game, two Tottenham mistakes in that, that they score goals from. I would argue that the single goal that Willett scored over the weekend to beat Chelsea, that comes from a series of defensive mistakes as well. Now you can portray that as good fortune, but actually it's a skill, isn't it? If you're not overwhelming sides, if you're not exerting so much pressure on on a team in a kind of blowtorch way that makes them eventually crack, then you have to take things uh, as they're given to you. That's right. They're, they're like a sort of you know a royal pet. You know they gobble down the food when it's given to them. They take their chances. I think that's probably what you would say about Eddie Howe's Bournemouth at their very, very best. They weren't a front foot team. They were a counterpuncher, but they took what they were given. They gobbled hard. They they had the ability to kind of flow into the gaps that an opponent had. Well, speaking of gaps, I'm moving on. Okay. Too long. All right. Chelsea. I don't know. I don't know why gap. I guess they're gaps in their squad, John. I mean, you know, they're not without gaps. Chelsea are a very weird prospect this yeah. season. <laughs> And I guess I feel it more than most people simply because I've always been a big uh, supporter of Graham Potter. Right. And so the, the... Outside his house. Yeah, yeah Supporting exactly. him loud and proud. I've also been quite harsh on Thomas Tuchel. Outside his house. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't like to comment on either of those two. No. I find it to do that Graham Potter played in the Premier League. I didn't even know that. Did he? I didn't know yeah. that. Who did he play for? Eight times for Southampton. Eight times? Yeah. More, eight more times than me. Than many people. And many other people. Most yeah. people. Most people, yeah. Yeah. The vast, vast, vast majority. Do you know what position he was? Uh, let me guess. Was he on the pitch? Yes. Okay. Did he play with the ball at his feet? Yes. Okay. Was he a midfielder? No. Forward. Winger? No. Fullback. Defender? Uh, he's a left back. This he is was a left not back. fun. Let's, let's be fine. To be fair, in the middle, midfield, most left backs play in the midfield nowadays. So I'm pretty sure I got that one right. That's right. In the, 90, in the mid-90s, Southampton used inverted hey, fullbacks. He was ahead of his time. Yeah. Yeah. It's becoming very clear to me that there's something amiss at Chelsea. Right. That's not the most profound profound realisation. Mm. But I saw a tweet this weekend from a guy called Aldo Sainati, who is uh, in the Barcelona Academy setup. 
And he was saying what's really interesting about the way that Potter's tenure at Chelsea has, has uh, sort of unraveled <laughs> is that you can see very clearly what Graham Potter is trying to do when you watch a Graham Potter team. They do a lot of asymmetric things in terms of structure. They do a lot of flexible things, move things around. And we saw that at the beginning of his time at Chelsea and we're seeing it much less now. Um, and the big question is like, why is that? I think there's a few different solutions to, to why that might be the case. I guess one of them may simply be that he's trying these things out and he doesn't think that they're working and he doesn't think the players are, are, are getting uh, the, the, the ideas, which would be fair because like, as, since he's come in, they've played pretty much midweek games every week. So he's not had a huge amount of time on the training field. And so there's been a few quotes from him recently saying the World Cup is going to be an important break for them because they'll be able to work on stuff. Uh, but the other thing is, is something that I think is worth realizing that obviously this sort of thing was happening with Thomas Tuchel as well. So you look at that side and I was very critical of Thomas Tuchel's time at Chelsea, largely because I didn't think that they were doing huge amounts of, of tactically interesting things. But then we get another tactically, and we know that Thomas Tuchel is a tactically interesting manager. We've, we've got the receipts. We've seen him do that in the past, but we're now seeing another tactically interesting manager coming in trying to put these tactically interesting ideas on the field. And it's now become very much sort of solid football. So the, the game that they played against Newcastle at the weekend, there was not really much sort of interesting no. structural things going on on the field. It just looked like a solid side. So the other thing might, might simply be that the players are simply refusing to... To be tactic. Uh, yeah, because... And, and I think that happens at, at elite sides, right? You get, you get this sort of idea that if you have the, the best players and quality players in your squad, yeah. they will simply say, I don't know why we'd... If, if they can't understand straight away or very quickly why things are being done, they can refuse to do that as well. I've so. never heard of that happening anywhere ever before. I, I can't think of another example of that happening I mean literally PSG exist and like the big question with PSG I, I, is I was doing a joke oh right yeah okay you got me I can think of it very regularly John looks so hurt when you did that and I do his little face he was so hurt just, yeah, it's, I thought that bit was a really I waited until you'd finished your bit before me. I do you know what I thought when you were talking then I thought that's when is a bit he the, stop, the Adam Park of, of uh, TIFO administrative um, position might cut out as a TIFO highlight on the TFO Highlights YouTube channel. And so I thought, best not interrupt, even though everything <laughs> in my head says, say this now, say this, interrupt him. Are you saying Stop that? Him. He's having too much of a good time. Say something horrible. And so I waited until you finished I before I made a joke because I thought that was a nice little bit. You're treating me like a, a, a content creator. Mill. Just a, a mill, yeah. yeah like a flower mill. Like a piece mill. of meat. Yeah, I am. Mm. Beautiful bread content. Well, that makes me feel better, Joe. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to say anything about Chelsea or should we move on to Spurs? I feel like we've been talking for a long time about these teams. Well, on Chelsea, I think something me and John were talking about earlier today before we started filming the podcast was that in a system that Graham Potter relies heavily on wing-backs, he doesn't really have any wing-backs, mm. which is not ideal. Reese James injured, of course. And Ben Chilwell. Yeah. And Ben Chilwell ben as well. Chilwell, yeah. right. So he played Azpilicueta and Lewis Hall who I hadn't really heard of. Lewis, is he one of the youth team players? He's a younger player, yeah. And then if you look across, I think if you look across that team, like so you look at the, the, the centre-backs they've got, they've got Thiago Silva, very good centre-back, pretty old. Kaladu Koulibaly, same situation. And then you've got Trevor Chalobah on the other side, who's young and, and sort of coming through. So you've sort of got a, a bit of a mismatch there. In the forward areas, you know, like Mason Mount, great player, really tactically flexible, can do loads of stuff. But then you have things like Obama Yang, again, another older player who you're not entirely sure whether he's, he's going to hit the sorts of heights that he has been. You've got Kai Havertz, who they've struggled to fit into as any system, whether that's playing as a 10, playing wider, playing as, as, a, as a nine. Raheem Sterling, who's increasingly looking like a terrible 
signing for them as well. N'Golo Kante is injured. You've got Jorginho and then and Kovacic, who I think between the two of them, they're okay, but they're not, yeah. not really dis- difference makers. So just across the squad, it just it kind of looks a bit flabby. Graham Potter is a process coach, right? So he's not going to fix things overnight. So I think we, we just have to accept that if they want to stick with him, they're going to have to give him a decent amount of time for those mm. changes to come through. It took time for Brighton to get to the level that they got to. I but it's not also, very Chelsea-ish, is it? That's no. the thing. And when I think about Graham Potter at the moment, I think about a, a manager who presumably most evenings is is fending off the internal desire to question the decision. And that's not to say at all that he made the wrong choice. I don't think necessarily that he did. But if you put yourself as a human being in the position of someone who takes a bit of a gamble, big step up to the next team, at Brighton, he was doing so well. It couldn't have lasted forever, but he could have lasted for much longer. And he could have probably had his choice of next teams. And he took Chelsea when they came along, right? So when you when you're given a number of options... I think you you've always, got to take that choice, though. I'm not saying you should. Yeah. No, no, the point. I'm the, not the saying you shouldn't have done. I'm just imagining him now, with retrospect, fending off the desire to the, question whether he should have done. The other problem with that is that when you go into a team like Chelsea, you have to get it right first. Mm. So you can't then be allowed to play with things and learn what you're doing. You're supposed to be already at that elite level. And I think we talked yeah. about this last week that Potter seems like a very normal person, and he's dealing with super, super rich elite level footballers I just see him as a Liverpool coach I just see him as the Liverpool coach I, I, I just really? never imagined him as a Chelsea coach I just I thought that, that well, Klopp's, I was Klopp's this, time would come to a natural end and that Graham Potter would be the obvious choice to take over and that would maybe happen next summer or the year after I hadn't thought of Liverpool I think so. you think you associate different clubs with different things that they do and Chelsea's very much very expensive and uh, you know crazily expensive players that they bring in and they get rid of people all the time and Potter doesn't really suit that it's a total change now Whole new board, whole new club, yeah. whole new world. I'm not saying a fantastic well point of view. It just like from from a kind of personality match, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, no one to tell them though where to go. I think Chelsea worked in a lot of respects because of the similarities in what Thomas Tuchel was trying to do yeah. and what Plotter's trying to do. But I think what's really interesting is through the whole of Thomas Tuchel's time, we were always saying, oh, you know, he sort of sorted them out defensively, and we're just going to wait for him to sort out these attacking problems and. It's the same situation now. I think we've we've seen Graham Potter come in, try a few ideas, and then very quickly get back to like we saw against Arsenal. They sat deep and tried to hit them on on the break. Yeah. They were very they were very passive against Newcastle, and it looks like the same sort of things happening. He sort of got to a point where he's like, well, we've got to make sure that we're solid in games, and then we can try and fix the attacking problems at some point. And I think once that happens with two very good coaches, the issues then are structural rather than with the coaches. It's to yeah, do with the squad. Yeah. It's to do with the attitude of the players and the and the the outlook of of what. They they should be doing so well, I think perhaps, it's going to take a long time a, yeah perhaps a bit of time off for the World Cup might be good for yeah. Chelsea in a way that it wasn't I see you want to say something Seb and I'd love to hear it but also we have to move on because I want to hear from you about Spurs who are a surprise in a slightly different way worse than we thought they you know from a results perspective they do go into the break in fourth place and a, a, a very respectable number of, of, of points and I think it's fair to say for the most part particularly earlier in the season they were grinding out results when they weren't performing well recently a bit more complicated performances though there haven't really been any to write home about there haven't been any as a whole performance there have been fragments there have been kind of good 30 minutes here nice half there good comeback good period silly game on Saturday really 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 stupid just in the sense that there was kind of no rhyme or reason to it it's full of mistakes it was like uh, one of those games on FIFA where nobody can defend and you, so as a result just because yeah. you can't defend you have to keep attacking and you just the, the last team that has the ball wins the game 
and it felt a little bit like that. I'm not as down on Conte as a lot of people seem to be just because the attitude from probably about late September onwards was this is going to be a physical grind. Let's get through it and see where everybody is after the World Cup. And that position Mm. is fourth on the table, top of their Champions League group. And okay, so out of the League Cup, but I think Conte, I think there was suggestion within that performance that he wasn't hugely bothered about staying in it, which I don't agree with, but it is what it is. So the ends kind of justify the means. I think we said a couple of weeks ago that I think when we look back on this season, we'll probably talk about it as being almost two distinctly different periods of football. I think the good teams Mm. will still be the good teams, but I think some of the mechanics of sides like Spurs, who are not going to win anything probably, but um, who will be competing for that fourth place, I think it'll be a little bit more cohesive. And also mainly because you're going to do away with so many of the mixed agendas. One of the issues amongst the, the Tottenham fans at the moment is that Cristiano Romero managed to be injured for 10 days exactly before the World Cup began. And I don't know his condition, but I think there's been evidence in players Mm. like that, that good player though he is, he quite understandably, he's a victim of the calendar, not someone that's sort of, you can't blame players for this. Once the World Cup leaves, once it's over and everybody becomes focused in a normal footballing way and goes back to the kind of the usual cycle of the game, I think then you Mm. see it becomes a little bit more of a litmus test of what a team actually is. That being said, Spurs need to improve in a couple of areas and they need to buy in a couple of areas because they're getting by. They're relying on their set pieces a bit too much. With all due respect to John's leads, there's just no way they should have won that game on Saturday. They were very, very poor in defence. And as we said with Newcastle, they kind of just took what they were given and rode Bish and Kulisewski a little bit too much. And these things need fixing. You can't, that's a a very short term way of existing in the Premier League, I think. So uh, loads of work to do there. Fine. Well, I'm going to throw us to a break now. When we come back, we will discuss the relegation battle, which is very unpredictable. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello there. This upcoming World Cup, what are The Athletic going to be doing about it? Well, I'm James Richardson and every night I'll be hosting a totally football show with the likes of Raphael Honigstein, James Horncastle and the rest of the Totally crew. Then every morning from Qatar, wham, the Athletic Football Podcast will be at you with David Ornstein, Matt Slater, Adam Crafton and many more. There'll also be World Cup content from Adam Hurry's Football Clichés Podcast, Michael Cox's insightful Athletic Football Tactics Podcast and Joe Devine's TIFO Podcast with all the stories that matter from Qatar. All in all, The Athletic is your essential audio companion for the upcoming World Cup.
Okay, the Winterpause relegation discussion. Let's have it now. Because it's unclear what's going to happen at the bottom end of the table. JJ Bull, let me come to you to say, uh, currently, uh, as we go into the break, Wolverhampton Wanderers, bottom on 10. Bottom. Southampton, uh, second bottom on 12. Getting a kick out of saying bottom over and over again. Uh, Other teams we have down there, Nottingham Forest are taking up the other relegation spot at the moment. But there really is only uh, six points between 14 and bottom, eight points between 12 and bottom, and nine points between 10 and bottom. Yeah? I say this all to suggest that at the bottom, things are getting a little dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Is that not allowed? Fuck's sake. (laughs) That's fine. Steve Hackey said it was fine. Uh, Yes. I just don't like that one. I mean, there's a few that make sense being down there. Nottingham Forest have signed an entirely new club. so On Forest, though, would you be surprised if, come the end of the season, we look back and we say, well, it just took half the season for all of their 21 new players to start learning each other. And oh, yeah. Good, you know? And next season they'll be third. And next season they'll be third. Yeah. yeah, that could happen, yeah. Wolves have been disjointed and... They were really dull to watch under Bruno Lage. It was really and he's meant to be an attacking coach as well. Like his, sure. his t- it was at Benfica before he was at when they, they were quite good. Difficult yeah. to adjust from what came before. But Yulan Lopetegui, the new Wolves manager, will be joining permanently, I guess, during the break, and we'll see his first game in charge. Yeah, you uh, watched him playing like a five-three-two sort of shape in the weekend. All right. I mean, Southampton. We know they've got rid of Ralph Hasenhutel, so Nathan Jones. Nathan Jones has come in. Yeah, from Luton, right? Correct. Right. We'll see how good they are. He had a couple of bad spells, at least. Bad at Stoke. He's quite highly rated, I think, Nathan Jones in coaching circles, but don't know enough about him to talk about him right now. So move on. West Ham spent loads of money. They were really good last season. They were, they've been pushing European places for the last little while. This is probably just like what happened with Moises Everton's sides, where they would be really good for two or three seasons in a row, and then they'd have a bad one and they'd drop down a little bit yeah. and everyone would be unhappy, but they're just fine because thing is what can you really expect they're not i mean <laughs> there's six points off being ninth or something like that and yeah. really close to the top it's just difficult things don't go your way sometimes here's a fun one everything for you, bad um uh dave Hankles has put a lovely fact in about nathan jones for us mm. uh, considering we don't know very much right now he says uh nathan jones once set a table tennis table on fire to motivate his luton players i was thinking about doing that for all the staff here for oh, the yeah. world cup there's a foosball table in the other room could set fire in that. We do that today. That'd be fun. Yeah, it is hard to get people off that foosball table, isn't it? They always They're wasting always their time on it. it. Who do you not. think would be most motivated by that? Probably JJ. JJ. JJ would be would be most motivated because he set the foosball table on. Fire. I like well, bright anyway, things, and I look forward to hearing more about things on fire. Jones. What point are we on now? Relegation. Just relegation still, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if anyone wants to burn tables, I'm all for that. Yeah. I like that. Burn the Premier League table, John. Mm, burn it all down yeah what do you think yeah this it's interesting isn't it because there's so much possible fluctuation as you said you've got like a lot of teams with new managers <laughs> that is why it's interesting yeah <laughs> that is true but as in i think more so than than usual in the yes. sense that we've already talked about what's interesting about wolves southampton both have new managers nottingham forest have that possibility of becoming good yeah. as their as their team's like learned who's actually on their team yeah um, <laughs> which players they can pass to <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. it's only been 15 games like, there's 23 more games to go well exactly like it's so early yeah mm. it's just because there's a break we're really talking about it just to hmm? I don't know why I have to point that out yeah silly thing to say Jesus but we, what a we, buzzkill hey <laughs> let us have fun JJ go I want to set fire on the table well, that's what I want to do yeah. <laughs> it's not just the teams at the bottom I think this, the teams who are currently sort of mid-table because there's there's only six points difference between Forest 
in the third relegation spot and Brentford in 10th place. Yeah. And so no, there's actually nine points. No, they have 13th. They have 13 and Brentford have... Oh, sorry, Forest, not Wolverhampton. Yeah. Yeah, Fulham, Brentford yeah, and Palace yeah. all have 19 points. And you can six go points down by being third spot. from bottom. Which That's is, right. I think, bottom. I don't think That's pe- right. Yes, yeah. bottom. Mm-hmm. And Brighton have been high for a long time in the league because they were so good under Potter, but they've not quite been there with the Zerbi just yet. It'll take time. So I think they'll drop down a little bit. And uh, yeah. Well, it would take us a couple of poor results for... And we've seen like Villa... We're, we're performing badly and they just picked up a couple of results and that's carried them up to mid-table. Like Leeds had a really bad run and then picked up a couple of results and that carried them to a certain point above the table. So Did you say you thought Brighton were going to drop down? Yeah, they'll drop down a little bit, yeah. They're amazing now, aren't they? I mean, they seem like almost even better than they were before. They're decent, but I think I just think the teams with... I think it'll look different to how it looks now, a little later in the season. I mean, Brighton also... I expect it will look different later. Brighton yeah. only eight points away from... In Brighton going into the winter pounds ahead of Chelsea. Yeah. I mean, if we're really talking about it, then Chelsea are seven points away from <laughs> that. Third. So yeah. it does it does really eight, uh, eight throw into the absurd, the conversation that we're having. No, I course. think the point I would like to make about this, though, is that ordinarily 15 games gone, you start to see a dead cert, right? Like you see at least one yeah. and you have a good idea of who, like of amongst three other teams who, who it will end up being. And maybe you get a surprise, but it is a surprise. Whereas this season, it's, it's, I think it's completely unclear. I mean, if any of those, Forest, Southampton, Wolves, if any of those three teams got out of the relegation zone, I don't think anyone here would be that surprised. And the other thing as well is that you look at who's there, like Wolves' ambitions would have been to finish top 10, hopefully get into sure. the UEFA, not UEFA Cup, but to call the Europa League. Europa Conference League. Uh, yeah. yeah. Southampton, have, their mission has been to buy a low till high. <laughs> Avoid relegation at all costs. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. mostly been it. Um, Forest... are Yeah, they're doing what they're doing, but their they ambitions... They the house on staying. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Everton... Unrealistic ambitions of being in the top half, but that's what they want to have. West Ham should be in top half because they've been there all the time. Leeds want to be pushing on from where they were last season and, and push up a bit further. Leicester should be higher up. They've been really good recently. Like it's I mean, Leicester were, bo- were rock bottom at one point, and now they've yeah. climbed up to 13th with a few results as well. So well, This brings me on to something else. You know, Maybe what we should do is just eradicate the bottom half and just have everyone finish in the top half because they do all deserve to be there. And also, it may yeah. come to mind that in France, uh, I was told last night that um, they're dropping to 18 teams in Liga next season. And they're doing that by relegating four and promoting only t- two, which Maybe is quite could relegate 12 teams from the Premier League. And then promote... None. None. <laughs> Just have the top eight. Yeah. And apparently it would be Brighton and Chelsea. This is the European Super League that you're talking about now, which is very unpopular. So I think the, we should be careful. This one. As in, like, getting rid of the bottom half of the Premier We're League. We're going to come back to talk about that a little bit. We could maybe bit, let in some big teams from around Europe, too, guys. Well, now you're What putting, do we think of this? Now you're putting words in my mouth, John McKenzie, <laughs> but you will hear what I think about it later on okay. during the podcast. Um, I think that has anyone else got anything they would like to say about uh, the relegation battle? Seb, what are, what are your thoughts about it? I was very surprised by how bad Everton were at the weekend. I think Conor Cody mm. put out a key... I don't know whether it was a transcribed interview that I read or, or just a little... Um, you know, notes app apology, but he basically just attacked the standards of defending. And if you look at those Bournemouth goals that they let in, it's just <laughs> yeah. Is that, that, me- is that meme, isn't it? We're, we're still trying to find who's responsible for this. Surely Connor Cody is responsible for the standard <laughs> of the defending. No. Yeah, it was his post-match interview. Okay. Seb, I think he was talking to Sky Sports, maybe. Yeah, I'm it's sure. one of those. Well, I really like Connor Cody, and I, I like it when footballers are that honest. But there's also kind of part of me which thinks fix it. I mean, don't talk about it, fix it. Yeah. Because yeah. 
some of the things that we're seeing at the moment you can attribute to fatigue and the kind of the um the wear and tear of having to play so much others you just think this isn't organized properly goalkeeper doesn't who's the manager who's the manager of uh, Everton? Mm. oh yeah yeah frank lampard yeah. uh <laughs> john mckenzie did a shade i, was, I, I, I didn't know how to respond to the that. lights that disappear was, that was, that was burn. Ph i was burn. so caught off guard that i thought he just genuinely didn't know i it was kind of <laughs> you meant to burn the table not frank lampard's yeah. career yeah. well as we've already discovered during this podcast seb uh, john's favorite jokes are the ones where it's not not clear if they are a joke or not um anyway that's good to hear about everton not for everton fans but uh it's kind of funny. Let's move on and talk about... So- okay, no, go on. You Just, keep I, I, I did have one thing on West Ham, though. I'd love to hear more about West like, Ham. Oh, because West Ham going into the break, of course, David Moyes, uncertain future. Well, uncertain future, but I think one of the problems for him is that if you listen to West Ham fans, if you speak to them, they'll say that the football has been mm. poor for about a porous, year. Porous, more like. And the Europa League... Yeah. Well, poor and porous. Uh, the Europa League run kind of masks that because if you... There was definitely... A sense from about February onwards this year that they kind of chucked the Premier League mm. in favour of the Europa League to kind of fuel their ambitions, and I don't know. Like I, I, I think it's one of the problems with getting to that kind of stage of European competition when it when it represents an overachievement. The next season, all of a sudden, you kind of treat that as a normal. That's that's what you should be doing every yeah. single year. And I, I don't know. I think he's in a tricky spot. I think also with that that ownership there. I think that's quite well, difficult. Um, oh, sorry, I, sorry. I thought I thought you were coming. No, to no, co- you, no, no, no. That was your cutting face. Your, no, no, I'm that was finishing you, tone. No. That was your, I, I, I know all of your faces. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't and that is your interrupting face. Really listening, um, <laughs> because I was reading something that, okay. that, that that Steve Hankey was writing. Bless him in the plan here. And John, speaking of jokes, where it's not clear if they're a joke or not. <laughs> let me read this one to you. Steve Hankey's contribution <laughs> to the Tifo podcast so far. Steve Hankey wrote about West Ham. There used to be granite. An impermeable rock, and now our limestone, a porous rock. See, I like to think that my jokes are like, they're mysterious, but they are actually funny. That's more like sure. a poem that's to me, a, though. That's just kind a of bad like a joke. poem. Yeah, I quite like that. Yeah, the way you read it makes it sound like a poem. It's like a, yeah. almost a haiku. That <laughs> third that sentence uh, should be, uh, you know, and there. Uh, but they really want to be the rock. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And then he said it's more of a geography uh, thing. And it's interesting because in geography, they do look at rocks an awful lot. And I thought you'd be looking at maps. Yeah. I thought it was geology, really. But again, another joke. There we go. That's all. Geodude. 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 What was that guy's name? Was that Geodude? Was he the Pokemon? Yeah. He's the rock one. Geodude. But what did he he evolve into? Graveler. Graveler. Uh, Yeah. And also, if you traded him in the original first generation Pokemon, Gollum? I think that's right. Gollum. Golem. Golem. Oh, God. Golem. Small Losers. Well, that's why it was Golem. Yeah. You know. It's it's a mispronunciation. Bro. Hmm? We can't be sued for a mispronunciation. Well, indeed. Indeed, it's a different word altogether, isn't it? Thomas yeah. Graveler. Well, that's mm. Graveson. Gravelax. Yeah. Bruce Graveler. Anyway, let's move on now from Pokemon to poking on the plan to the next bit of the plan. <laughs> it's time for the next bit now. Changing the game. We, we talked about this before. We, we were, you know, we referenced the Super League, of course, John. Your and Super I'm, League. The, my Super League. league. Yeah. And I'm hoping to get some special McCangles from you. Uh, I want to hear your take from your <laughs> perspective. We'll come back to that later. But of course, uh, this was this was sort of um, uh, decided as a, as a point of discussion because um, Gerard Piquet did an interview on Twitch last week where he said this in the context of conversations about the Super League and, and, and wider conversation about the evolution of football. Gerard Piquet said... 
Uh, you have to try to modify rules that have been established for many years and change them. I understand that it's difficult. It happens in all sports. You have to find a way to attract attention. And, and he goes on. He said more in his interview. It wasn't just that. It he wasn't did that just tied a, out trope of being like, kids don't like football anymore, so you have to tear the building down. Right? So here's the thing, though, John McKenzie, because I know that you, you had a birthday recently, as did you. Happy birthday to you both. Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, you're elderly now. You're, you're, well. Yeah, you're the same age. You're old man now. We're two two weeks apart. You wouldn't age. understand what the kids want in the way that me and Florentina Perez do. And uh, <laughs> I always come back to this thing. Did you remember in the Super League week, which was oh, it was a great week, real fun week. It was fun. Wasn't that was it? a great week. That was it was all it all started week. and then it all ended in a week. That week. But halfway through the week, actually just right at the end, uh, the, the, the evening before the whole thing collapsed, Florentina Perez went on television in Spain and said lots of stuff. And uh, social media was ablaze with mockery and, uh, you know, um, understandably so, because obviously within the context of that week, this conversation seems a bit weird. One of the things he said, which was treated, I think, with a, a, a fair deal of uh, suspicion and scepticism, but also... I think a bit unfairly, was the idea that maybe we could consider shortening the game of football. Or I know that FIFA at the moment are currently doing tests around stop clock and, you know, 60 minutes, because to be honest, like most football games, the average amount of football that is actually played is around 60 minutes and not around 90 if you take out all the time that the ball is out of play. I personally don't think that's a terrible idea. I understand why he was ridiculed in that moment, and I understand that that kind of message shouldn't really be coming from someone who's trying to spearhead an operation to, uh, you know, take lots of uh, money away. If from you do that, that but the game's still the same length. Sure. No, but that, no one said the stop the stopwatch thing is not right, not, okay, not what I'm necessarily minutes, suggesting. I'm just saying that's something that it's FIFA. Like, are, it's like in U.S. sports, right, where you have four quarters of fifteen minutes and it ends up being eight hours long. It, it, what? Why? Because of all the fluff in between. The, the, isn't the argument that the games are currently 90 minutes long, but you only play 60 minutes? Yeah. So if you had a stop clock and played for 60 minutes, it would still end up being around 90 minutes long. Yeah, but you'd have way less wasted time within the game. Would you? Yeah, the game... I'm not saying it doesn't mean that the game... I, itself, I, and, and also, Florentina... Just to be clear, I think you've conflated two different things. Florentina Perez wasn't <laughs> suggesting the stopwatch idea. Yeah, yeah. He was opening the conversation around ch- changing the amount of yeah. time that a game is on for. Uh, the stopwatch thing is just something that's being tested and trialled by FIFA at the moment on a, on a separate point. It just happens to relate to the duration of a football match. I think people shouldn't be afraid of having conversations about changing football. That's my, my well, that fundamental is the problem, point. Is it? Would people, be that. Yeah, people in football, they like things to stay the way they have always yeah. been. But a lot of things are just the way they are because that's how they are. There's yeah. no logic or reason to it. Well, in fact, there's something that features it. Let me just grab a prop. Bear with me. That features in how to watch football the incredibly thick and and uh, and, uh, weighty. and wonderful weighty <laughs> Have you uh, thick? book. It's very thick with two C's. <laughs> yeah. It's got a delicious. It's got a delicious bottom on it. Um, but, like the uh, Premier League table. Of the fifty-two rules that are there in this book, all very high quality. Uh, one of them is about the reason that there are eleven players in a football team. Do, do you want to know why there are eleven players in a football team? I know because you told me because you like it. Yeah. Thanks for What that. is it? Well, great. You've taken all my energy. You can't just be a co-pilot, can you? You can't just support me in my... You know exactly I what I want, to. want you to do in that. Let's try that again. All right. Do you want to know why there's... Yes, a- and... <laughs> <laughs> why there's 11 players in a game of football? Let's try it with John McKenzie. John, do you want to know why there's 11 players on a football team? Absolutely not. You guys are the worst people. I was trying to tell you to do the bit. I'm, I'm I know exactly the key that you're saying. I'm doing the bit. I'm doing the bit. I'm doing 
the bit. Now. Oh, sorry. If you the reason longer, is that there's 11 players on a, a, a football team is because there's no reason. Because it doesn't matter. Because they decided once in the past and now that's it. The reason the goals are the size they are, even though people are taller than they were in the past. Why? Because they decided that 150 years ago, and now that's what it is. The reason that the Ds are there, and all the different lines are there. Why? Because they decided in the past, and now that's how it is. And it's like, it makes me think of the, of the you know, without wanting to get too political, it makes me think of people always saying, oh, you can't change uh, the amendments to the Constitution. They're already amendments. Like, what? Because something was decided 350 years ago. It's what the wise people lived back then, and we're all stupid, and we can't be trusted to have a conversation about how long a f football game should be. It's insane. I'm not saying it should change. I just hate, I no, hate I it when like, we all close down the conversation because we're afraid of bad change. The general I Ford quote is that if people asked him what, uh, what they, if you asked people what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse. Mm. And so he invented the car. Car. Well, not the car, yeah. I mean, I agree with you, but I, I do also think that the context matters here. And the context here is that people want to make more money in football. Yeah. And so the way that they're doing that is by trying to argue that they're modernizing the game when sure. really what they're doing is implementing plans to make more money and no, then no, using yeah. these to back, back sure. data. I don't support the Super League people. You I, just came up with the Super League on your own a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is that I, I wish it wasn't Florentino Perez leading that conversation. I wish that the, the conversation was being was being led by other people and was a was a progressive and interesting conversation and you know was one that we weren't afraid to engage with Seb. 100% it matters who leads it so we had the situation last year where we were listening to someone either from Real Madrid or Barcelona or Juventus is really the one because when the um the kind of the dregs of the Super League conversation were happening we were kind of hearing about oh you know start the conversation this start the conversation that oh hang on I'm just going off to break the club's transfer record and now let's come back and talk about how unsustainable our our footballing model is I get aspects of it I understand the need to question UEFA's mm. hold over the game and their monopoly of decision making but if you're going to weaponize a conversation or an argument like kids these days don't want to do that, don't have a 65-year-old sure. white guy doing it. Like, you need to invite those other voices because otherwise it just seems like self-interest. So, for instance, the rehashed version of the Super League is now under the kind of the PR management of a company called A22. And that's a sort of an attempt to rebrand the intentions behind it. And then two days ago, Jean Laporta is, is being quoted as saying, and we're going to get a billion euros. Yeah. And you just think, you can't win this argument with these people because there's just no way out of this kind of a perpetual cycle of, of greed and my club must be here because, much as you're saying, it always, always has been. Therefore, it must always, always be. And it's just, you have to look at it from the outside of what your framework is yeah. for something like the Super League. Like, who is it benefiting? If you want to talk about the interests and the habits of Generation Z. Maybe get someone from Generation Z to talk about that. Maybe do some research. Maybe back up your thinking. Maybe provide some support to the claims, which without that do just seem like, well, we can make all of this money. So I love should... uh, that you used the uh, the words Generation Z in that because I don't think anyone from Gen Z has ever described it as that. <laughs> Generation Z. But I'm 38 years old. That's what I do now. Do you this want to hear some me. fun facts about me. the A22? Yes. It carries traffic from London to the Eastbourne <laughs> area of the East Sussex coast in which town it ends. That's good. Yeah. 
What a road. Much as the Super League would carry financial benefits to yes, all, all the way to the East Grinstead, where be. it went in 1718. So it's a really very handy, handy metaphor. It very much is, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, fine. Any suggestions for things that you'd like to change? Now we've decided that it's fine to have changes. Do you want to change anything? Maybe what you do is you, um, rather than putting all the biggest clubs in the world in the same league, you do it like when you have the most fun playing Pro Evo or FIFA where you have to push a random button to choose a team that is in the league. So every year it's different. I really like um, a six-year, seven-year reset where every seven years every contract ends. Maybe they just create new clubs and don't have any of the old ones currently and you just have like the blue club, the red club, the stripey club. Stripey club, yeah. Polka dot club. And then players have to play for them. Yeah. Like it's a World Cup. I'd call mine the best club. And what colour would yours best club be? Um, black. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Black and they're all wearing hoodies. On they're the... all wearing hoodies. On yeah. the fish. <laughs> Do you know someone stopped me in the street the other day and said, oh, you're wearing your uniform. I said, these are my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> You do wear the same clothes every yeah. day. Anyway, uh, you got any changes you want to make to the game? I would probably change the host of the TIFO Football Podcast. I don't see why it should be you all the time. Who would you change it to? Someone made, it, someone made that decision 350 years ago. I think we should have a healthy and honest conversation, <laughs> about Joe. About change. About change. It's funny how when you change the context, fear of change does become a... a thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. Well, let's have a break then, um, because I decided, and that's how it works here. Yes, we're back from the break. Now, very important part of the show, because of course over the weekend, there were some explosive comments from a Portuguese Manchester United player that set social media ablaze. And people have been talking about them the world over, and I think we should address them here today. And I'm speaking, of course, about Bruno Fernandes, who's... <laughs> that can be any perfectly Seb's doorbell. Now, not only being I'm being uh, stunted by JJ Ball, I'm being blocked by John McKenzie. I'm also being foisted by Seb's doorbell. That wasn't a very good bit anyway. But you get the idea. Bruno Fernandes spoke in a Sky Sports interview after uh, the victory over Fulham, the late victory over Fulham the other day. He said, it's strange, the World Cup starting next week. It's not exactly the time we want to be playing the World Cup. He went on to say uh, that I'm reading the wrong bit. We know the surroundings of the World Cup, what has been the past few weeks, past few months, about the people that have died on the construction of the stadiums. We're not happy about that at all. Now, I think it's like pretty rare isn't it not fair to say, Seb, so far that we've heard a player of the kind of uh, the spectrum, the spectrum, the stature of uh, Bruno Fernandes speak out on an issue like this? I think it's been something people have been sort of waiting for to hear what football players' responses to it will be. And that was his. Yeah, it was good for him, actually, because I think we've got used to the very vague, non-committing remarks that that players make because it's safer and I understand that because of the media attention on them and the interest those kind of comments attract but it's just a shame that they happen now six days away from the world cup but I think one of the one of the, the difficulties has been that we haven't probably done enough to understand the position of certain players so when the Australian team there as a squad they made their position clear about Qatar all, all you really heard was yeah but you're still going it's like I understand that the world is full of hypocrisy everywhere you look, but it's still important to listen to yeah, to, to what they're sure. saying. But obviously, with the greatest respect to all the Australian team, it's it's very very different when immediately after a Manchester United game live on Sky in front of the whole world, 
and the last game before the World Cup, you, you snatch a word with Bruno Fernandes and he says, well, this before uh, getting on the plane. I, I, I admire him for it because I, I think it'd be very, very easy for him not to do it because it's just that you can, you can, you can play a, a straight bat to it, get on the plane, and then you're inside your, your national team camp and then all, all questions and all conversations go through a press officer. Everyone's in the same position. Everyone's in this horrible scenario where they can't really say what they want to or they don't say anything at all. And it's, um, I, I don't really have an answer for that. No, no, for sure. I mean, look, John and I, we spoke about this last night. And um, I think as it relates to people's expectation that players do say something or take a stance, it, it is complicated, isn't it? And because the instinct would be to think, well, Bruno Fernandes is one of the world's most famous players and plays at one of the biggest teams in the world. His comments, we're talking about them now and they might have some impact, but they're not going to have any impact on the tournament. Like nothing, the tournament isn't going to change because he's spoken. And there's an argument to be made that we shouldn't expect the footballers themselves to do the speaking. Yeah, and this is a big bugbear of mine, which is why I went on a rant yesterday. Mm. And I'm sure you're feeling a little bit nervous that I'm going to go on a rant now. But I think if you I'll... said all the things you said yesterday, we might get in trouble with Steve Hankey. <laughs> so uh, just tone it down. Yeah, I will tone it. I'll yeah. tone it down. But there, there seems to be this weird sleight of hand that has happened in modern society, whereby rich and powerful people can make unilateral decisions and then they can defer ethical responsibility to people who are not them to make these sorts of this, like make these sorts of moral stances that we're talking about here. So the people who have decided that the World Cup should be in Qatar and that it should be played in this way and this is how it's going to be structured are people who are heads of state, people in FIFA, people who are very wealthy and in terms of corporate influence. Some people who spent time in jail and others who are dead. What we've seen happen then is this assumption that these people aren't to be held morally responsible because they will refuse to. And so the moral buck is sort of passed on to the people who are taking part. So the footballers suddenly become the moral arbiters of whether or not this, this sort of thing should happen. And I think I'm very happy that Bruno Fernandes has spoken out. I think, he, as Seb says, he doesn't have to do that. I would like all footballers to, to talk out about all areas of life when people who are discriminated against or people who are minorities or uh, it, 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 or just anyone who is downtrodden by people in power to be able to speak up in these situations but it's not their responsibility and it and we should never fall into the trap of thinking that is the case because by doing that what we actually do is play into the hands of the people who are morally responsible who get away with it because people are then like well these footballers should just not turn up to the world cup yeah they should all wear t-shirts they're, doing, they're all as bad as each other they're all going anyway yeah. as, as if anyone leads like an uncompromised life yeah. these the people are, these people are workers like they are the best paid workers that have ever existed in world history but they are still workers and what we're expecting them to do is to do something that which could compromise their career in the future. And we're, we're saying to them, look, you've worked really hard to get to this point in your career. And the pinnacle for a lot of you is playing in, on, on a World Cup. And we're saying that you should just take the decision to not, not turn up because the people who actually make these decisions haven't been able to, to make the sorts of responsible decisions we think they should. And I just think it's unfair to expect footballers to, to make those sorts of moral choices. They are not the people who are the moral fulcrums in this in this sort of debate yeah just to add to that like i couldn't agree more with what john is saying but also like to frame it how much have you heard from politicians in the uk or anywhere about this how much have you heard from people who are actually supposed to be statesmen and women who actually have the full vantage point on geopolitics who have the resources behind them to 
investigate and analyze and evaluate the decisions that were made that have led us to Qatar. Like, what on earth makes you think that a footballer holds ultimate responsibility, at least ahead of people like that, in the hierarchy of, of importance? John is right. You get people who make decisions and face absolutely no recourse for them. In fact, they get wealthy as a result of them. And at the same time, all the people who typically traditionally are there to protect citizens or to, to, to speak on behalf of citizens, you hear nothing from. And yet, as a result of footballers' place in society, they acquire this weird responsibility to be a sort of a, a, a public voice. It's utterly bizarre. Also, given the volume of noise that the average footballer has to withstand on a daily basis, right, someone of, of Bruno Fernandes standing in the game, can you imagine the, the strength of character you need to stand front and center of this kind of conversation? I think on a personal level, I think a little bit of comprehension of what that requires wouldn't be a bad thing and how difficult position, a position that should be for someone who is paid to play football. In the abstract, it does describe just how bizarre footballers become that we're in yeah. this situation. At no, time. I agree. I agree. Is that what sports washing is, though? You just use sporting people and people who are prominent public facing to then get things done that you want to do yeah it's difficult even doing tifo irl videos because like it's a wholly controversial subject all of this i mean is it even controversial it's well i guess it is technically you want to highlight all that stuff but also cover all the teams and all the football stuff of it but that's not it's really complicated it's like even for us but this is part of the equation, JJ, isn't it? It's like you, 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 you know you are putting people in this situation where they have to make a choice between the pastime, the hobby. I listen to the Stadio podcast a lot. And one of the things that Musa Okonga said a few weeks ago was that I've known Musa for a long time, loves the World Cup like nothing else because he describes it as something you can escape into. It's, a, it's its own little world, isn't it? The World Cup, you dive in, group stage games all the time, quarterfinals, how's my team going to do? Brilliant. You live in the World Cup. And it doesn't feel this way at the moment because because this is the, the choice that's being had to, you, you have to make as a fan now. Like it's being forced on you that you must say, right, well, I, I you know, this World Cup that I love, football that I love, uh, I, have to, I have to look away from it now because, because why? Because you, you're, you're being put in an impossible situation where you have to consider moral factors and ethical situations which you should never have to as a football fan. I think the issue is it's likely that that's going to, in one way or another, continue to be the case in the future. I mean, it also has been the case in the past, right? And one of the things I w want to mention now is that on Thursday, a podcast uh, that I recorded with David Goldblatt is released where we, took, we have this conversation over the course of, of an hour, something that he mentions you know several times is is how um the world cup was hosted in russia in 2018 the beijing olympics were hosted this year uh you know there is less opportunity to discuss those partly because david says whilst it's you know the qataris don't make it easy to go there as a foreign journalist and report on it you can do it in a way that you can't in china and in russia and so like you know it, it doesn't it, this isn't a kind of what aboutism argument which says oh we shouldn't be having this conversation but the reality is that Four years ago, we we probably would have been in a you know, not, not dissimilar position. And I think in, in the future, certainly from an environmental perspective, the idea of the World Cup being hosted from Mexico to Canada, all the way, you know, in 12 different cities uh, in North America um, in four years' time, like there's an, an enormous like carbon footprint that comes with that as well. So like there are ethical decisions that relate to that. And these are all different and I'm not trying to compare them or say anything is better or worse, but 
the reality is, like, if you are a modern football fan and you're engaged in, in any issues beyond what happens on the pitch, then it, football is already compromised and to a certain extent al- always has been. And that doesn't mean I'm defending Qatar. And I feel like I need to say that every single time I talk about this, which yeah. is one of the reasons it's but stressful. Joe. Um, it's just like, I think the, the real thing that is sad about this is it's kind of like it opens the door to all of those things. And then it's sort of like, you know... the blue or red pill in the matrix like once you've seen it you can't unsee it and then you start seeing it everywhere in football but this has also been around for a really long time 36 olympics in berlin the nazi olympics the world cup played under the argentinian junta like this is not new i think that's what's the most what 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 depresses me about it is that it's not a new concept that's been kind of snuck in through the back door and suddenly everyone everybody's fallen for it the idea of sports washing, okay, it has a new name. Like it's described in a new way and we're probably wiser to it than we've ever been. But it's a tactic as old as a lot yeah. of sport itself. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's not new and yet it continues yeah. to. It's a great documentary well, on that on, uh, on Netflix I've, actually. There's a FIFA one that's up. Just now you've seen it. It's quite yeah. good. Also, we can say it's not yeah. as good as the... Well, I was going to say another thing you should definitely, definitely watch is the excellent documentary put together on Tifo Illustrators. Oh, I love how you say Illustrators. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's, yeah. um, what's it called? It's called the Qatar World it's Cup Explained. Uh, I think I will have mentioned this in the intro as well, but a second plug anyway, written by James Montague, illustrated by Alice Devine. It's, it's maybe the best thing we've ever done. Uh, and it's better than that crap on Netflix. That is good. That is good. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched the first episode yesterday and I thought, oh, it's good. Damn it. <laughs> You, you know it's quite interesting it is probably the best thing we've ever done and neither you or I have any editorial responsibility <laughs> I, I edit the whole thing you can count yourself out of it sir but how dare you take away I, I, I did said the it should edit. be done I said at the top we should do that mm. and then they did it mm. yeah. I mean I I did say well done in, in the kind of the, the editorial whatsapp to you and, and I eschewed it know, privately yeah. as I should yeah, but yeah. publicly, it is all my responsibility. Okay, it's amazing. That's the, That's the important thing. I feel it weird in this amazing. podcast today. <laughs> it's because I accused you of blocking me. That's why. Oh no, that's. I mean, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to talk about the Bundesliga, but uh, you know, there's no Winterpauser there. There is. That's where the. That's where it comes from. Can we just say that Freiburg are second, though? Freiburg are second. Yeah. Union have dropped. Well, they lost two games in a row, so they, they're they're fifth now. Shame for Union. The regression is coming. Union and the regression is coming. Would. Yeah, Bayern yeah. Munich top though, and will remain top. That's my prediction for the yeah. rest of the season. Barcelona top of La Liga. Hmm. Barcelona top of yeah, La Liga. Yeah, thirty-seven points or something. Looking Barcelona good. doing Napoli very well. Napoli top of Serie A. Napoli yeah. top of Serie A. I mean, By eight, big, eight big points distance, in it, I think yeah. now. There could have been eleven if the uh, Fiorentina game had gone a different way for Milan. But Milan in second place. That's still manageable, I would say. But it's quite a big gap. And you've been looking yeah. good as well. Turned a corner. They've won some games. They've turned a corner indeed. Mm, look, look yeah. Tighter. PSG looking quite yes. competitive. <laughs> so, so Do you think they've got a chance, Seb? Oh, I don't know. They yeah. might just edge it. Okay. Well, I think unless there's anything else that anybody... Oh, one quick uh, note on Garnacho. We should talk about him. We mentioned um, uh, Manchester United a little bit earlier. Um, Garnacho scored... Well, he had a fantastic week. Scored two goals. One of them the, at the, at the, uh, in the, uh, the dying ambers. The dying embers, embers thank you of uh, the Fulham game really cocked that up uh, <laughs> to snatch a win took his shirt off everyone talked about how he's got bad attitude don't know anything about him couldn't have happened to a nicer club eh right I don't know could it yes right it could have done right. um, 
I haven't watched much of Manchester United no. when he scored, so I'm not going to say too much. But Well, well, he's a very dribbly boy. He's really quick. He's like a traditional winger. He does play with right foot on the left side, so he comes inside like that. Uh, scored a nice goal. He's really quick. So I can't very quite nice figure goal. out what level I put him on. Often I can see players that are young, and I think one of the things I, I'm quite good at is spotting whether they're actually genuinely good, like Pedri or something. You go straight away, that guy's amazing. This guy, I can't quite tell. He's definitely good, mm. but I don't know if he's... Elite here, but we'll see. Because I didn't think some other players that they come good when they're a bit older. Interesting that you said that about Pedri. I'm still waiting. I, I'm not sure yet. I, uh, <laughs> Are you not sure on Pedri? Oh no, I think the I time, think you're probably going to bit here. I will tell. <laughs> uh, Pedri's amazing. I love Pedri so much. Well, if it's not happening in England, I haven't noticed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's the end of that's. By the way, I'm wrong. Uh, that's the end of the TFO podcast there. Uh, Seb Stafford-Bloor, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Joe Devine. Uh, JJ Bull the Bullet. <coughs> and uh, John, Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Woof. Woof, exactly. Uh, Steve Hankles. Oh, by the way, Steve Hankles, this is our last show with Steve Hankles ever. We haven't told him that yet. <laughs> no. It's just our last <laughs> show with Steve you... Steve Hankles until January. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Steve is, uh, you know, he's, he's going out, he's doing some better things during the World Cup. Can't be bothered to be he's here with us every mates, day. Better mates, hasn't he? Better mates. Yeah. Oh, James Richardson. He's better than all <laughs> My of them. My buddy James. Oh, the, t- the Totally Football Show that gets more downloads than TIFO. Oh. Yeah, well, hope you have a good time over, just over there in that other room. It's going to be really weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because we're, we're going to be gonna, here having a great time. You as well, and you're going to be yeah. over there with all the professionals, listening hey. to serious good things they say. What a waste of time. Have we described what we're doing during the World Cup yet, Jay? No, I'm just about to do that now, sir, but thanks for trying to do my job as host <laughs> for me. Maybe Seb should host. I'm very angry today. Anyway, uh, Steve Hankels also will, will return in January. We'll be reunited then. Until then, we'll be producerless. So if the show starts the show start to drift... <laughs> I mean, That'll if it's fine, right. it's, it's going to maybe illustrate what I don't do here. So. Exactly. Yeah, if it's completely fine, you maybe won't come back at all. Um, but uh, we'll be live streaming every day during the World Cup tournament. Uh, we start on. Uh, so actually, we've got a little test one for the release of How to Watch Football, which is on um, Thursday the seventeenth. On Wednesday the sixteenth, we will be doing uh, a fun live stream. Some of us will be answering a few questions. So if you can join us for that, join us on the TFO RL YouTube channel. And as of Sunday the twentieth, if there's a game on that day, there will be a TFO live stream podcast uh, after the last game of that day, where you'll be able to see Jonathan Ross, Dog McKenzie, and JJ Bull the Bullet, Seb Stafford Bloor in London, and myself. Uh, throughout the uh, throughout the entire tournament along with some special guests so it's a long old stretch i uh, i counted the days yesterday to tell my wife which days off i have and it is 17 days in a row at the beginning mm. oh. i told you that's the terrifying oh. thing about oh. it. anyway that'll do for the time being thank you to don mar uh producer don and a little wave there can we see don see don in the background look well, there he is yeah, and we'll be back. Pro- formally, I've sort of said all of that. How do I know? Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>